Well, Halloween is right around the corner. Let's get some costume ideas. Catherine, what's your energy-themed Halloween costume this year? Yeah, this may not be surprising at all, but I'm going to be a FERC rulemaking. I'm going to have a sandwich board with Noper, which is notice of proposed rulemaking on the front with like distributed energy resource, energy storage, resilience, capacity performance. And on the back, it'll have orders like order number 841 and 745 and 755. So I'm going all in. (laughs) Jigger, what about yours? Well, what I'm actually going to be is a zookeeper because my um, my son is obsessed with uh, zoo animals right now and has decided to be an elephant for Halloween. But if I had to pick an energy costume, I think I would pick a um, a, uh, a a a biomass bankruptcy expert. <laughs> and and what would that be like? How would you dress as a biomass bankruptcy expert? I am I'm thinking something that like looks kind of like Indiana Jones like on like one of those twigs hanging out of your hat. Yeah, I thought exactly. you would have like a green eye shade and a and a pen behind your ear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we put out the call on Twitter for your best energy themed Halloween costumes and man are they creative. They're so good. We'll detail a few of those at the top of the show. So, I need a Halloween costume. I need one that's fast and easy to get on, something that's flexible so I can do many things while in costume, while at a party, something that's durable so it lasts. You know what I can dress up as? GE's Reservoir Energy Storage System. And boy, that's convenient because this podcast is brought to you by GE and its new energy storage system, Reservoir. Reservoir is a modular lithium-ion battery that can cut construction time by 50%. The product is new, But it's the result of decades of innovation in software, power electronics, and system design from the team at GE. Find out more about GE's Reservoir Battery Storage System at ge.com slash energy storage. And they've got some beautiful pictures of container units there, too. So if you want to print one out as an inspiration for your next costume, go ahead and do that. Again, that's ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Ten years ago this week, stock markets all around the world collapsed as fears grew that we were headed into a deep, dark global recession. Alan Greenspan called it a once-in-a-century credit tsunami. Today, we're facing the consequences of that financial crisis, wage gaps, anger at elites, a loss of faith in institutions, and spiking polarization that all together contributed to things like the rise of Trump, Brexit, and a global wave of nationalism. Energy markets were also transformed as a result. In retrospect, sometimes in very positive ways. So today, we're discussing the impact of the 2008 market meltdown a decade on. Then we'll turn to a topic we haven't covered much, biomass, and Jigger can maybe dress up for that segment. Biomass is one of the world's top renewable resources for heat and electricity, but it's facing some serious challenges, particularly here in the U.S. We're going to detail some of them. And Canada put a national carbon tax in place. Can Prime Minister Trudeau rally Canadians in conservative-leaning provinces behind it? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. Catherine's in D.C. She's the chair of 38 North Solution. Hello, hello. How are you? Just great. I'm so glad I'm not traveling this week. It's the first week in like a month that I haven't gone anywhere. But as soon as I stop the record button, uh, you have to take off your headphones and then write a speech, which is like two hours away, and you don't even know what that speech is going to be about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's not as critical as it sounds, but I do have to make a public appearance that I need to kind of think about a little bit. <laughs> Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He's also in the D.C. area. Any speeches today, Jigger, you need to make? Nope, just my soapbox on the energy gang. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're happy <laughs> to give it to you. Uh, so I mentioned at the top of the show, we solicited some Halloween costume ideas from Energy Twitter, and we were not disappointed. I don't know if either of you got to see them, but I'm going to read some of them because we got so many good ones. So if you are in need of some costume ideas, listen up. Here we go. Here are some of the best ones. Um, Lola writes, business as usual. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> good. Uh, Saroosh Avery says, if you want to be really frightening, go as the new IPCC climate report. Also good. Beth Hartman has a decent one here, one that hits close to home for me because I get so annoyed at people calling things a Tesla killer. She says, go dressed as a Tesla killer. 
all in black, oil-style garments with Tesla toy car in tow. Pretty good. Oh, nice. Evan Meager says, sexy LCOE. What the heck is that? <laughs> Jigger, this one's for you. I think you'll appreciate this. Darth Vader. Oh, yeah. So Vader, if, uh, if you don't know, folks, is like the new one of the new solar tariffs in New York as part of the energy reformation process there. It's very controversial. So Darth Vader, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, Anna Chittam says, vampire load. Vampire, but biting into a surge protector that has all the TVs and DVRs plugged in and is never turned off. I, I could easily pull that off. I have so many extra cords that I'm not using. I could just have them hanging off my costume. I'm sitting here surrounded by cords and computers and microphones. I could definitely pull that one off. Arvin B says, a little dated. This one's also for you, Jigger. I think you'll appreciate this. And it's actually related to our conversation today, like just, just general finance issues. Arvin B says, a little dated, but a tube connecting my backside to my mouth, a parent-owned Yieldco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Catherine Paul Seedler's follow-up to that one is for you because I know how much you love CCS. He says, same setup for me, but my costume is CCS. <laughs> good. Interview with a vampire says, solar mantles. You and your bros as a panel of all-male speakers about solar power. That is so business as usual. <laughs> that is, yeah. That directly ties to the first one. Brendan Keyes says, Emperor Palpatine with the lightning hands as another play on Electrify Everything. I think this one's probably my favorite. There's These last two are my favorite. Zachary Goldstein says, I go around with my shirt half buttoned, my pants around my ankles, and one sock on. I'm the climate, and I'm clearly and undeniably changing. <laughs> 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 i love it oh it's so good um okay last one mark d says go around at the party asking people questions when they don't respond immediately angrily ask for an immediate answer demand response Ooh. <laughs> there were a bunch of others i didn't get to out of time reasons uh thank you so much for those my ideas were not nearly as creative so i relied on all of you just another reason why you all matter so much to us as listeners so back in 2008 one of the most popular costumes was dick fold the ceo of lehman brothers who oversaw the biggest implosion of an investment bank ever on wall street in september and october of that year we faced a cascading series of events that threatened to collapse financial markets around the world. So this was just a couple years into my career as a business journalist, and I was really getting into how finance and business really worked. It was a steep learning curve for me. You know, I had a background in journalism and environmental science, but uh, I, I wasn't steeped in finance and business. So I got my best lesson when I saw it unravel all around me. And I was just pouring over every book and magazine article I could get my hands on, keeping up with the drama, trying to really understand what was going on. The drama was very high in energy, too, which is an area I was covering. Oil prices collapsed, carbon prices cratered, capital dried up, the burgeoning renewable sector looked like it was about to get crushed before it really got started. But then governments all around the world stepped in, creating a path for clean energy growth that might not have been there otherwise. It might have been very different. There were some unexpected outcomes for sure. So let's start by remembering what was happening in the fall of 2008. Jigger, you were CEO of Sun Edison at that time still, I believe. Uh, give us your account of how the crisis impacted the company and the industry around you. Well, I mean, we had just had a failed sort of IPO effort because of the um, destruction of the stock market. And I remember... Um, Remember the TARP bill, I think, was passed in October of 2008. And in the TARP bill, you know, our good friend Moro O'Neill, uh, who worked for Maria Cantwell at the time, you know, got our eight-year extension done um, in the TARP bill. So that was good news. And just um, for clarification, there are a lot of younger listeners out there who are probably in their early teens when this stuff actually unfolded. So the TARP bill was the Troubled Asset Relief Bill. And it was essentially the bank bailout, where a lot of interest pushed what they wanted into that bill, but it was a way to push capital into banks. Yeah, that's right. And basically, bills are generally supposed to originate in the House. But in this case, you know, Nancy Pelosi was playing games on that side, and so it didn't happen. So the, the bill actually 
um, originated in the Senate. So there was an ability to put this in. And I remember like the Republicans kept taking it out and Mora kept putting it back in. And then it was just back and forth. And the final bill ended up having it in. And the House just passed whatever the Senate passed because time was of the essence. Um, so it was the first time we really had stability. If you remember, I mean, the 30% tax credit was passed in 2005. So we'd only had it for three years and there was some back and forth there. So getting an eight-year extension was a really you know, big piece of good news um, for all of us at the time. And then, <clears throat> and then we were sitting in the presidential election, right? So it was deep into the Obama-McCain presidential election at the time. Yeah. So Catherine, I want to get to you on the politics front a little bit more. But Jigger, in terms of um, what was happening in the solar market? What was happening to public companies, companies trying to go public, uh, you know, capital availability for projects? What was swirling around you that made things look very tough? And were they as tough as they seemed? So they didn't feel tough for us. I mean, in general, what was tough was corporate finance, right? So getting people to invest in companies was tough just because, you know, everyone was hoarding their cash at the time. But getting project finance was relatively easy, right? Because remember, the Spain market was... was, um, very hot at the time. And so there were a lot of people who had raised project related funds, right? So that money had already been funded. So, you know, somebody in February of 2008 had already raised the $200 million to invest in projects and they were still actively looking to put the money to work. So, so the project financing wasn't difficult to get. So the business of Sun Edison was doing fine. It was the corporate finance piece that was was more problematic because, you know, we had expected to raise money out of the IPO and now we needed to raise money otherwise. Catherine, walk us back into the political landscape. You were actually bridging the gap between the investment world and the policy world. You were tr- you were at Good Energies up until the fall of 2008, I believe. Right. And you went over as the director of the Gridwise Alliance. What um, was your title? I was president of the Gridwise Alliance right when uh, President Obama was elected in 2008. And this became a huge opportunity because the president and both houses of Congress were going to be in the same party. So you knew you could get some things done um, and that you might have a sort of a short timeline to do that. And immediately um, Obama had started talking even before he was sworn in about doing a stimulus package. So I got one of my members, which was then Kima, to do a jobs report and say, all right, if we got like a billion dollars in for Smart Grid, how many jobs would it produce? Because everything was about jobs. So we did this report. I testified before the Senate. We got like a billion dollars in the what was called the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which was early 2009, the the, the stimulus bill. And our jobs report was cited in the bill, let in the legislation. So we definitely had an impact on what that looked like. These had to be shovel ready jobs. They had to be 50-50 cost shared on the smart grid front. So it was, it was great for utilities because they were able to deploy a bunch of things like smart meters and other kinds of smart grid technologies. And metering really was what was ready at the time. And it turns out they did create a lot of jobs. The stimulus bill itself included a ton of other things besides smart grid. It included weatherization assistance program. It included block grants to states, advanced battery manufacturing, loan guarantee program. Remember, this is where Elon Musk got his ATVM loan. Um, 1603, which was payments in lieu of tax credits. So that was a big boon for the solar industry. So there was a ton in the stimulus bill that really did incentivize clean energy technologies on all fronts. What I'm particularly interested in is what this did to change the course of the renewable energy transition. Now, Jigger, you mentioned that there was not a lot of worry for projects already in the pipeline because they had secured contracts through feed-in tariffs in Spain, feed-in tariffs throughout Europe. The United States quickly stepped in and developed a stimulus package with clean energy baked into it. Um, I was revisiting some of the earlier reports from the 2008-2009 time frame. And by April of 2009, it looked like leading governments had dedicated over $180 billion to renewable energy and energy efficiency in stimulus packages. Um, There were 100 countries with some kind of ambitious policy target at that point or promotion policy for renewable energy. 
And many of these policy developments were a direct result of the financial crisis. So the question I have is, would would those ambitious investments from governments even have happened had the financial crisis not taken place? No, but that that's the that's the misnomer, right? The financial crisis well, only... Well, it's a counterfactual for sure. Like, there's no way to prove no, it. No, but... it's, I don't think it's a counterfactual. I think we can prove it, right? I mean, ultimately, the... The renewable energy industry got all of the support that it got because it was ready for it, right? The industries that weren't ready for it were excluded, right? Remember, during the financial crisis, people were looking for shovel-ready projects. We were all shovel-ready. We had already created these huge markets in Germany and Spain and Italy, and we were, you know, like growing tremendously in California, and then we were setting up new programs in Maryland and D.C. and other places. So... So we were already ready for it, and that's why we were given the money. Same thing's true in China, same thing's true in India. And we had already gotten the policies set up in India before um, gov- uh, you know, Pre- uh, Prime Minister Modi was elected, right? So that's why you know, he embraced it so quickly is because it was already set up. All he had to do was say yes. Right, but a nearly $200 billion influx of capital from, from governments, uh, I don't—I mean— that's a, an extraordinary amount of money. And sure, the industry might have been ready, but that doesn't necessarily mean they would have gotten that level of support. No, we would have gotten it anyway. We were already on track. Like we already had Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you know, Allstate, Northwestern Mutual, Mass Mutual. They were already all lined up to do it, right? When the financial crisis hit, this was my biggest gripe around the loan guarantee program, right? Everyone's like, the loan guarantee program saved this oil industry. No, NRG bought those projects before the loan guarantee provided guarantees, right? So the 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 projects were trading. What happened was SunPower and First Solar made way more money on their projects because of the loan guarantee. So they would have made less money had the loan guarantee not been there. But I think to suggest that we lacked liquidity is is purely false. I mean, we have data to support that. Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, so I do think that because there was a lot of cost sharing involved that bought down the cost of a lot of these projects, especially for utilities, there was there was more of a runway to do clean energy. And it was really seen, started, a shift started that clean energy was seen as a job creator. And I think that really, the tide changed then. So by June of 2009, the Waxman-Markey bill was passed and all the utilities were in on that. There was an enormous coalition all working toward clean energy, clean technology that would then also bring down carbon uh, emissions. And granted, that did not pass in the Senate. And then the House flipped in 2010, completely changing the political dynamics. So you really couldn't get anything like that done. I think at that point, there was a shift in the way that utilities and others, including in the financial sector, thought about clean energy and as a, as an investment. Um, and of course, after that, the president had to focus on how the administration could impact carbon rather than having Congress do it. But at least we had already started to see that shift occur. Yeah, remember, Stephen, the thing that I think you're you're missing is that we spent two years putting all this stuff together before the financial crisis, right? When you think about the Apollo Alliance and all the work we did with the AFL-CIO and all the work we did with all the major foundations, we had thousands of pages of backup data on exactly how many jobs would be created from solar and wind and energy efficiency and smart grid and vehicles and all that stuff that all happened two years before the financial crisis. And so we were prepared with thousands of pages and reports and all that stuff when it occurred. So yeah, you can say that the financial crisis is what unlocked the money, but then there's always something that triggers the unlocking of money, right? Whether it was, you know, the fact that we wanted to export oil in 2015, and that's how we got the additional extension of the ta- of the tax credits then, right? There's always a trigger mechanism, but it's our preparation that got us the money, not, you know, the largesse of government. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of agree with you. I, I don't know that uh, that there would have been such a cataclysmic event that would have unlocked $200 billion in government support almost immediately, like the financial crisis. But I, I, I totally agree with you that the foundation had been set already. I mean, the messaging was there. Both the W. Bush administration and the Obama administration were generally on board with that messaging. So, And then the loan guarantee program mechanics were already in place. So there was a lot to build off of in the United States and internationally in terms of messaging and actual program mechanics. But I, I just I don't 
know what would have caused governments to immediately put $200 billion into renewable energy technologies immediately, um, aside from the financial crisis. But they didn't put $200 billion immediately, is what I'm saying. Well, immediately is relative. No, no, it's not. GTM's own reports can show when that money was dribbled out, right? So they may have unlocked a 1603 grant program, but then it took like three or four years before it really got utilized. In fact, most of the 1603 grant program was utilized with banked modules in 2012-2013, right? The same thing's true with loan guarantees. The vast majority of SunPower and First Solar's projects weren't built till 2012 or 2013, or even though they were awarded by PG&E back in 2008. So, I mean... Like the $200 billion is not something that we were given in cold, hard cash up front. That was like a program that required all these rules to be met. And we had to like, you know, justify the numbers. And we had to like go wait for the money to be transferred to states. And then we had to apply for the money there. Like there was a lot of paperwork and a lot of stuff. And because we had 30,000, 40,000 really qualified employees, we were able to, to navigate the morass. Remember, everyone who got a loan guarantee program had to hire a lobbyist for $20,000 a month to be able to get the money. Right. We had the $20,000 a month. That's why we got it. Yeah. And remember, if you think about what had to happen after the stimulus kind of worked its way through and projects were funded. And yeah, there were a lot of requirements because you had to prove that you were shovel ready. And in a lot of situations, you had to have 50-50 cost share. So that that had to kind of work its way through. There were a lot of other requirements, as Jigger said. Um, But then in 2014, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed the Clean Power Plan. There were CAFE standards that that were also proposed. And so there were all these other signals from the administration including the end of 2015, that omnibus deal that allowed the ITC and PTC to be extended and start that phase down process. And I think all of those have continued to stimulate investment, whether it was from venture capital or not. Venture capital is coming back in the sector, but it was it was different kinds of investors at that time. And I think the signal was there and the trajectory has been there ever since we first invested. I mean, certainly before the stimulus, but the big slug of the stimulus really I think kind of helped incentivize a whole nother piece of the economy to move in the direction of clean energy. I think it's also important to focus on what didn't work, right? I mean, so 10 years ago, if you remember, the Bush administration had actually, you know, passed in an earlier form um, a mandate for transmission, right? So like DOE and FERC could could designate places as, you know, areas of great concern and they could actually uh, streamline and push through transmission projects. In fact, you know, uh, one of our good friends, you know, started Clean Line Energy and Clean Line, you know, Energy Partners was building all sorts of transmission to help support wind. I remember when I was going to trans- uh, transition team meetings at Department of Energy in 2008, we were talking about transmission and people were saying, hey, what can we do to do that? And largely, I would say almost all of those were failures, right? I mean, and so with all the money and all the efforts and all that stuff, right? So like I, my point is simply that it really requires an alignment of all of the parties to get this kind of stuff done. It doesn't happen just with a bunch of money from the government. Can we talk about fracking? We had a conversation about the, you know, this speculation about the fracking bubble. And however you view the sustainability of fracking from a financial perspective, it is very clear that very low interest rates caused the fracking boom in this country. I mean, it, it accelerated mm. fracking, and it was the reason, no, you're, you're, I don't think so. you're not so what, sure. What caused the fracking boom in this country was the Bush administration's relentless pursuit of changes to the Clean Water Act for eight years, right? Okay, I mean, yes. So they basically allowed, I mean, they had legislative changes, actually, the Clean Water Act that basically allowed frack water and all of the chemicals from frack water to be fully legal and for EPA really not to be able to manage it. And so, okay, so I agree. So that's really what but, caused it. And and remember, Harold Hamm and those guys were already off to the races in 2007 in North Dakota. And then what really caused the fracking boom was oil hitting $147 a barrel in the spring of 2008. When oil was $147 a barrel in the spring of 2008, people were like, well, crap, this is going to make us a ton of money, right? Because remember, fracking wasn't new. We were fracking when I was at BP in 1999. So the technology was not new. What was new was we were at $16 a barrel in 1999 and 
fracking costs $60 a barrel and it wasn't cost effective, right? Now, I don't disagree with you. Again, this is the same argument as we're making with renewable energy. The fracking industry was ready. They were ready to pounce. So when the Fed reduced the interest rates, they absolutely took full advantage and raised $300 billion of cheap money. And that helped to propel them forward in the same way you're suggesting that the $200 billion from the stimulus helped propel our industry forward. But the fracking industry was ready for it. Yeah. They, and I'll add to that list that the decades of support from the Department of Energy to help commercialize fracking techniques was instrumental as well. So there were many decades of government-supported innovation that got to the fracking industry ready, and it grew extraordinarily fast once uh, low interest rates were put into place. You know, so, so going back to oil prices, oil prices were at a high in the summer of 2008 at like $150 a barrel, and they dropped down to $33 in February of 2009. And well, that had an extraordinary impact on the economics of biofuels, uh, cellulosic, algal, even conventional biofuels. Um, but fracking took off, even with oil prices that low. Um, so fracking for oil and gas was still economic, partly because of that interest rate environment. Well, and the thing with the oil and gas industry is they have an entire industry of people that funnel money into oil and gas. Remember, in the 1984, sorry, 1986 tax reform bill, the only tax credits for individuals, doctors, lawyers, dentists, that they can take on their personal taxes are oil and gas taxes, right? They're not allowed to take renewable energy taxes on their personal taxes, right? The only taxes you're allowed to take in the 1986 Tax Reform Act is our oil and gas. It's actually in the 1040 um, explainer form when you get it from the IRS. It says oil and gas taxes are allowed on your t personal taxes. And so there's literally an industry that's been around since the 80s that does nothing but funnel hundred, dollars $500,000 checks from like, you know, upper middle class people into oil and gas projects. What do you both think the most important lasting legacy of the financial crisis is for clean energy markets. Catherine, you start. So from where I was sitting, innovation was so key and we were able to get innovation funded in the stimulus bill. So for example, I don't know if anybody remembers in 2003, the Northeast had a blackout, an electricity blackout, that it took them an, a year to figure out that it was a branch in Cleveland that caused that to be set into motion. I was happened to be in my cabin in the Adirondacks, so we had outages all the time. Didn't seem like a big thing to me. But after the stimulus, there were a whole bunch of things called synchrophasers that were put all over the electric grid, and those were funded by the stimulus. And so something like this would not be able to happen again. And so I see this as really the ability to buy down the cost of some of that innovation and deploy it even more than it would have been. Um, yes, something would have happened eventually to to help on some of those resilience issues. But similar to what we're facing today on resilience, I think when you have a crisis like this and you and you put a slug of money into new technology, you can get some pretty good outcomes. Jigger, what do you think? Um, I think that the lasting legacy is that the renewable energy industry is a trusted partner. We made a lot of bold claims in 2008, and we continue to make those bold claims at the state level when we ask people to pass policy for us. And today, we're viewed as fully trustworthy. Right? Remember, our industry created one out of every nine jobs uh, during the Obama years. Right? So since the financial crisis, we created one out of every nine jobs in those eight years. And that's for LED lighting, for electric vehicles, for renewables, for all sorts of stuff. And we told everybody that we would do that. But I don't know that they believed us. And when we actually accomplish those goals, like when, when a state like Illinois passes a law for clean energy, they know that there are going to be hundreds of firms that come into their market and generate economic development now right away. Like we're very reliable partners now. And that is a big, big deal. And that is a real, I think, legacy of our industry out of this financial crisis. This podcast is brought to you by GE. GE has a new energy storage system. It's called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion system that slashes construction time by up to 50%. GE's preparing for a world where batteries are integral to the power sector. The company is pairing the reservoir system with wind, solar, microgrids, and even natural gas peakers. Every day is different. Every day is a different battery storage solution. 
You remember Bob from our previous episodes. He's the engineer who built the reservoir product. Bob has decades of experience in thermal generation, including helping build one of the world's biggest nuclear power plants. Bob recently led a very cool project in California, pairing a 10-megawatt, 4-megawatt-hour battery with a natural gas peaker plant for Southern California Edison. Every day it gets dispatched in the evening to fight the dot curve, and it uh, immediately starts discharging to the grid. In five or six minutes, the gas turbine closes the breaker and and, uh, starts uh, to produce power. The batteries allow the gas plant to run on cruise control, so it acts like spinning reserve and responds very quickly to market signals. After a couple hours, we'll shut down the gas turbine and recharge the battery and get ready for the next uh, the next opportunity. So you've seen quite a shift in electricity markets, Bob. You started out in thermal energy when battery storage was basically non-existent, and now you're at this point where batteries are changing the way the whole system operates. That's a fascinating career arc. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, the hybrid stuff with thermal power plants is, is has a special place in my past. Um, but, you know, when we talk about hybrids, it all, you know, also on the, uh, the solar farms and taking conventional PV fields and shifting that power and having, the, I think, the right product, the reservoir to work with PV suppliers and solar fields to have configurable or dispatchable power. But that doesn't mean we stop in those other areas. You know, we're working on black start units today uh, with customers uh, to go along with the hybrid peakers that we've done. Uh, We look at wind farms and look at ramp rate control with our wind renewables team where they're just across the street and they're over talking to us all the time. We're talking about projects. Every day is different. Whatever your power or energy needs, whatever you want to hybridize, GE's Reservoir can help. Bob's team has worked on a vast array of battery applications. Find out more about those applications and about GE's Reservoir battery storage system at ge.com slash energy storage. On to biomass. If you look at total renewable energy consumption around the world, biomass is still a very important piece, a huge piece, because... Biomass is so common for heating in many countries, it's long dominated the share of renewables. Biomass still dominates renewable heating, but it is losing share in the electricity sector to wind and solar, and of course to hydro. In the U.S., we saw an important shift last year. For the first time, according to the Energy Information Administration, solar generation surpassed electricity generation from biomass plants. That's generation, not capacity. Solar capacity has long surpassed biomass, but actual electricity generation surpassed biomass. And, you know, we've been burning biomass for a long time in this country. So solar has surged while biomass is stagnant or down. Bioenergy is facing a ton of problems today, some market-related, some political. Writing in Power Magazine, Sonal Patel recently published a fantastic piece detailing the troubled state of biomass in the U.S. generation mix. So we're going to talk a little bit about that story. And we also heard from a listener asking us to finally give some attention to the topic, so we figured it was a good time to cover it. I should note that when we refer to biomass, we're talking about a wide range of material. Wood material, agricultural waste, municipal waste, and other organic matter that can be burned for electricity. Jigger, why has the use of biomass fallen in so many states while wind and solar have grown so astonishingly? There are many reasons for it. Well, the primary reason for it is that biomass is really, really hard. So what you find with biomass plants is that the vast majority of the providers of feedstock um, want you to basically pay them for it or at the very least pay to transport it yourself to your plant. Right. And so by the time you get that feedstock, it's not free. So it costs you money. And then when you burn it, by definition, the heat rate of biomass is very low. So by the time you've burned it and done all the work, and it's a very, very uh, sort of dirty, difficult process. It's not like a very clean burning process like natural gas. So you've got to do a lot of cleaning. There's a lot of maintenance. There's a lot of work. The plants are very small, right? Most of these plants are, you know, 10 megawatts at at best. Some of them are 40, 50 megawatts, but those are even worse because now the feedstock is harder to get. Um, And so therefore, most of the PPAs for biomass plants are like 10 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's not cheap power. And it's not going to get any better. It's one thing to say, well, you know, solar got 17 cent PPAs. Yes, they did. 
But that was an innovation curve and we promised to reduce our costs and we have. Biomass has no way to reduce their costs, right? So, so now the real question is, what are they there for? Like, what is the purpose of a biomass plant? Particularly today when we are oversupplied on the power grid, right? So the utilities are saying, do I really want to pay all this extra cost for power that I actually don't need? Yeah, so I spoke with Bob Cleaves, who's the president and CEO of the Biomass Power Association. And I used to, uh, fun fact, run the American Bioenergy Association back in the early 2000s. And I know how hard it is. What the hell? What haven't you done? (laughs) There is no (laughs) stepchild that I have not tried to represent. Um, (laughs) But um, you're you're absolutely right, Jigger and Stephen, both. The global market is like 75% of renewables is biomass. And the, the thought is that of the doubling by 2030 of renewables, about a half of that could be biomass, 36% in Europe, Mideast, and Africa. So there are huge opportunities there. And the U.S. market has had all these headwinds with cheap wind and solar, cheap natural gas. There's Section 45 tax credits expired. But what Bob told me is that there are some hot spots. So there are reasons that you would put a biomass plant in that would be useful. And some of those hot spots would be California, for example. Remember all those wildfires? So there there are environmental reasons to try to deal with the 100 million dead or dying trees in California. They have similar issues in Arizona with pinion stewardship and then the southeast with some of this, these pine trees that the wood, the furniture industry is not using anymore. So there's all this waste material down there that could be processed. So there are hot spots where biomass would be really feasible and, and important to have in the U.S. Of course, a lot of this has to do with policy. So with the tax credits expiring, they're looking at with California, they have a program called BioRAM that just was extended five more years that provides grants for hazard zones to deal with some of that excess um, underbrush. And then also a huge piece of this is that EPA, um, part of the renewable fuel standard, are ERINs, which allow biomass to qualify for the same sort of credit that a biofuel would would get. And that has really been languishing at at EPA. And right now, that would be the game changer. Biorams and ERIMs. We just cannot get away from the acronyms. Doesn't matter what resource we're talking about. You, un- you mentioned a lot of things there, and I want to separate the policy stuff from the market stuff. So in California, biomass generation has dropped 11%, even though there's an important forest management piece as wildfires get worse there. And it's dropped because utilities are just procuring low-cost resources, the lowest-cost resources possible in wind and solar dominate biomass hands down. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, According to this story, uh, great reporting from Sonal Patel. uh, Excel in Minnesota is ditching a biomass plant because it can procure wind energy for seven times less than an equivalent biomass plant. So like utilities just looking at lowest cost resources don't have any incentive to buy electricity from biomass plants. Well, and it's and it's even worse. So we've looked at 15 biomass plants and spent a lot of time at whether we should buy them. The vast majority of those biomass plants have been offered to us for a dollar. So they've said, take it from a take it from us for a dollar. You have to put about five million bucks into the plants to actually fix them up to get them running again. And then you've got to like you know employ all these people and test all the biomass on site and all this other stuff. And no one will give you a long term biomass contract, right? The Forest Service says you can have the biomass from the California forest, but we're not guaranteeing that we're going to give it to you every year. So. Yeah, we'll give it to you year by year, right? So, so it's a really high risk situation. And then you're basically wait, you're expecting the largesse of the state to basically take care of you on keeping the biomass plants open, because um, the vast majority of these biomass plants have expiring um, PPAs. So either they're old plants that are ex- have expired PPAs, or as as Catherine was saying, the BioRAM program. But those are five-year contracts. And then, you know, the legislature just passed a law to increase it for another five years. But it's still a very short PPA term, right? And so, so like, what several of um, folk, the folks who are pitching us are telling us now is that it's actually far more cost-effective to turn the biomass into pellets and actually ship them using Enviva to Japan 
and have Japan buy them from us because it's you get way more money for it, right? And so, like, my problem with the biomass industry is that no one wants them to succeed, right? It's like EDF is selling their biomass plants. Covanta has decided to sell all their biomass plants. And when you talk to the utility companies, they're like, well, we sort of see why we should do this. Like in California, for instance, we're getting calls all the time from folks who have walnut shells and almond shells and other things saying, where the hell are we supposed to sell our shells? We used to sell it to the biomass plant on the road, but like, you know, no one wants them anymore. And we don't want to pay $40 a ton to put them in the landfill because we used to get, you know, these biomass plants to take them for free. Yeah, but a lot of those farmers are just open burning that stuff too. So it would be way better to send it to a biomass plant. But unfortunately, there's, there's this low value for landowners. It's not like solar and wind that you get to make a lot, lot of money if you're a landowner. It's just doesn't, it doesn't provide as much money back. Right. But the state has to say that this is something worth doing. We're either going to subsidize it through the electricity grid or we're going to subsidize it just through, you know, it's the Farm Bureau. And we're just going to like, you know, give these biomass plants a fixed fee of 20 bucks a ton to take the waste. Right. Just like we do with food waste. Um, But there has to be some sort of compelling public interest to keep these biomass plants open. On top of that, once you go beyond waste, right, which is generally, you know, environmentally fine, there's a lot of professors like Bill Muma, who's a, you know, storied professor out of Tufts University or others who've done these analyses showing that if you actually grow trees for biomass plants, that is a climate change loser, right? Which is why, you know, the Obama EPA was so wishy-washy on biomass for so many years because they were getting lobbied by a lot of climate professors saying, don't push biomass. Right. There were a, a number of studies that came out questioning the carbon neutrality of biomass, and that caused pushback from environmentalists, and it influenced policy within the Obama administration. I think you're both saying the same thing, with just different terminology. So, Jigger, I agree with you that basically to make biomass work in any meaningful way, you have to have some kind of local economic reason to support above market uh, cost generation. And Catherine, when I hear you say hotspots, I'm hearing something similar. Hotspots meaning a policy put in place that somehow subsidizes the use of that biomass for a greater public good. And we're seeing that in New Hampshire and Maine. I grew up in New Hampshire. The timber industry is extraordinarily important there. There are a lot of paper mills in New Hampshire and Maine that have shut down. Um, So there's a bunch of infrastructure up in the northern parts of the state to process that feedstock. And there have been a lot of uh, new biomass units built or Uh, mills that have been converted into biomass units. And the state has come in and said, we are going to support uh, multi-year contracts at above market rates because there's an economic good for keeping people employed in the North Country. And that's where the technology, I think, can succeed. Yeah, that's exactly what I heard from Bob Cleaves as well, that there are the Northeast has been doing some that the that while pulp and paper is still flat, there's still sawmill waste product to deal with. And then, as I mentioned, California, Arizona, and the Southeast all have those issues. And so I think it is regional. Um, It probably could serve a a pretty good purpose in those places um, if it were subsidized. And there are, Jigger, a lot of different emission studies. There's another study done by the University of Illinois that that says the carbon emissions from biomass are 115% lower than natural gas in the first year and 98% lower over 100 That's years. That's a terrible so- university. I can't even imagine who would have graduated <laughs> from that university. No. I just thought I would mention that one. But, I mean, you know, so I think there are different studies that show different things. And, and there's certainly a long track record of environmental issues around it. But I think that um, that they would could, could serve a real public need in certain parts of the country. Yeah, but I, I, I do believe Bill Muma's work on a Tufts, which is basically that if we're growing trees for the purpose of burning them or growing biomass for the purpose of burning them, that that's really a terrible, a terrible like net for the planet. There's a lot of waste products out there from furniture construction or home construction or whatever that, you know, I think should be 
you know, put to good use. And I do think there's a lot of shells and all sorts of stuff. But even there, for instance, we're seeing a lot of technologies in the anaerobic digester space. We're seeing a lot of other technologies where you can actually process this through um, an anaerobic process and you can actually like turn these shells and things into charcoal and biochar um, and then take the excess exothermic reaction and you know turn that into electricity or into heat and so so I just think that the raw burning of biomass is something that is a process that largely cannot be improved on and there are so many other technologies that are that have better improvement pathways. Well, let's go up to a country with a great amount of forest land, a country I admire greatly for their great outdoors, Canada. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Canada recently was the girl who stood outside the line when they were, uh, when everyone was about to buy their legal marijuana and she sold like hundreds of dollars worth of Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and well, Canada is uh, putting legal marijuana into place. It is also developing another very important policy a price on carbon. Um, but more than just a price on carbon, it's it's a carbon tax and dividend where 90% of revenue is going to directly go back to citizens, schools, hospitals, small and medium businesses. It's going to be the biggest test for a carbon price in history, and it will also be a huge political test. Four provinces in Canada, Ontario, Manitoba, New Brunswick and Saskatchewan have no pricing plan in place. So they are going to be automatically enrolled into the federal program, whether they like it or not. And that's causing consternation. Trudeau's conservative critics are vowing to make carbon pricing a centerpiece of next year's elections. And, you know, it could be a make or break issue because Canadians are split on the plan. There's a lot of support, but there's a lot of skepticism depending on, you know, which province, which, which province you're polling. So will they change their minds when they start getting checks in the mail? Catherine, give us an overview of Trudeau's carbon pricing plan. Yeah. So back in 2016, uh, Trudeau announced that the federal government would would introduce a policy that every single province would have to have some kind of carbon scheme. And it could be a cap and trade. It could be a price on carbon. It could be a tax, however they wanted to do it. But everybody was required to do it. Now, Alberta has been doing it for a couple of decades. So they they had already gotten something going. But everybody was required to do it. And every province, in some way, presented a plan. So New Brunswick put forward a plan that was rejected. That's why they're part of these four provinces. Ontario had a cap and trade scheme all lined up and ready to go. But Doug Ford, the new premier, uh, came in and scrapped it and said, we're not doing this. We're going to do something else. I haven't decided what that is. I mean, he's brand new, but he wants to figure out something different to do. And I think he's going to probably tackle more on the transportation side. Ontario had already gotten rid of all of their coal. They'd already done a lot to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. They only have about 4% of natural gas. So their big load on greenhouse gases is the transportation side. So what Trudeau's scheme said, said, all right, if we don't approve as a federal government of your province's concept and what you're going to do, then we're going to put ours in place, which is $10 a ton starting in 2019, all the way up, increasing by $10 a ton to 2022. So then it would be $50 a ton, plus what they call a surcharge on gasoline. And that's four cents a liter on gas. And um, so those are the two components. So it tries to tackle both the power industry and industrial side and the transportation side. For, so provinces that have a lot of hydropower, and it's not monolithic. I mean, Canada has some of the provinces are really strong on hydro, like British Columbia. Um, so then they have to focus on industrial and transportation as opposed to some of the other ones like Alberta and on, on Alberta, which would have more coal and they have to think about how they can, you know, have different solutions. So they there are different solutions in each province. And I think the issue is politically and legally, how is this going to stand up? The Canada example is interesting in the wake of the IPCC report, which also looked at carbon pricing. So the Canadian carbon tax will start at $10 and go up every year. And that's quite ambitious from a political standpoint. But the IPCC says that we need to start with carbon taxes at you know hundreds of dollars, going up into thousands of dollars, depending on the industry, in order to see the transformation that we need to see. So when you actually look at what the science says, a carbon tax that low 
does nothing to get us to where we need to be. With that no, said, I don't think that's, you don't think that's true? I don't think that's true. I, I think the know. IPC says that we can hit the 2030 uh, numbers with the existing technology, and so $50 a ton or, or you know, those types of carbon prices are fine. But to, so it's after 2030? But to get to the much more aggressive, um, you know, goals after 2030, you need, you know, much, much higher carbon prices. Okay. So what are your thoughts, Jigger, on this carbon pricing scheme then? So I've, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings. I guess what I would say is that, well, I'm a huge believer of carbon taxes. And I do think that the price is almost immaterial for the first round of benefits. And so the first round of benefits, in my mind, comes from CFOs and accounting firms in general starting to track carbon dioxide. I think carbon dioxide, to me, is by definition a waste product. And so when you figure out what you know, where your waste is coming from as a commercial entity, you now have the data by which to address your waste, right? So when you know how much waste is coming from your electricity usage or your fuel usage or HVAC usage or whatever, you now have the ability to say, oh, if I do energy efficiency, which is already cost effective without a carbon price, it's even more cost effective with a carbon price. So my sense is, is that just measuring it, which people have to do now, um, will give people greater insights around technologies that they could have deployed 10 years ago, but just haven't gotten around to. Um, so that's good. Yeah, it's interesting, because I talked to people in New Brunswick and in Ontario about this. And they're very different provinces with different trajectories altogether. So New Brunswick does have some fossil, they have a coal plant. And they are trying to do an energy transition. Their utility is trying to figure out how do we get there. So if you think about electricity is very low, priced very low in New Brunswick. But if they have to then go forward with rate increases in order to lower their carbon footprint, this actually could give them a little bit of bandwidth to really make the energy transition and do all the things that they want to do. It's a little bit like, well, we're going to pay the piper now, but in the long run, it's probably going to drive some change and get some new behaviors in place and level out the playing field for efficiency and renewables because they're going to have to deploy more of that to meet these goals. Now, one of the other things that I think I did not mention up front was that this this is expected, this new carbon tax is expected to cost each resident in these provinces a little over $200 a year, but that 90% of the 90% of what they collect in those revenues is going to go back to the consumer. So the consumer is expected to actually get $250 a year back to cover what they had originally spent. And then of that remaining 10%, some part of that is going to be able to go to small businesses that apply for grants to be able to make the transition and to be able to lower their greenhouse gas footprint. So um, this is part of how they're trying to message it is that it's not really going to cost people that it'll be you'll be paying for it out of this hand, but the other hand is going to actually get more back. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they do that. I find liberals are always so terrible at the actual like, you know, political part of this process. So I'm trying to figure out how those checks are sent. I think they're going to try to send them quarterly. Like, I mean, what you obviously want is you want people to get addicted to those checks before like the next government comes in to like roll the stuff back. Right. And, and then takes the checks out of their hands. And so it'll be interesting to see how the politics is, is, you know, um, you know, rolled out here in Canada. You know, seven out of 10 Ontario voters say that carbon taxes are a government grab. And around the country, nearly 70% of people think it should be a provincial issue. So local management and giving people the money, the freedom to spend the money however they want is really key in making this politically palatable. Well, and it's tricky because of the way the the national versus provincial government works in Canada. So provinces are given a lot of autonomy over natural resources and local taxation, whereas the federal government does overarching taxation. And so there is a little bit of a legal push and pull over who has jurisdiction over what. So we'll kind of see how this spins out because it could be that these provinces like Ontario sue and, you know, try to try to fight back on this. The word right now that I've heard is that they'll have a hard time doing that, but they're the provinces do have an awful lot of autonomy. 
So if we're not targeting this money in any place, how do we track how people are spending it? Is there Have there been any good studies showing how people reinvest that money or save that money when they get it back at the end of the year? Do we have enough data on that or is it even... Are we even able to collect that data? There was a lot of data done on the the Bush tax credit um, refund. I don't know if you remember, but back in like two thousand and three or so, they like gave everybody a six hundred dollar check, and um, there was a lot of data that showed that folks use that to pay down debt um, or save that money as opposed to spending it. Um, but you know, my sense is, is that you know, there is data that's relevant to this particular question, but I'm not sure there's a lot on carbon taxes directly. Indeed. All right. Free electrons, folks. Jigger, what is your free electron this week? So mine's a little log rolling. Um, so this week we announced our partnership with Carbon Lighthouse. Um, it's a it's a pretty radically new way of doing energy efficiency. It basically is... Um, you know, taking 100% of the savings from the building owner and then actually turning it into a rent payment that we pay for the next 20 years. It's an interesting flip on the PACE model, right? Because the PACE model basically has a loan that gets paid back over 20 years and the next owner takes over the loan. Where in this case, you're basically paying people to do the right thing out of the energy savings. And we found that the, the sort of human behavior part of it has been pretty successful. Uh, and so we're excited about the partnership. Congrats. You guys are making a ton of progress over there. It's very impressive to watch. Catherine, what's your free electron? So one thing we did not mention, but I thought was because it's Halloween time and we're thinking about scary things. A PG&E in Northern California cut off power uh, preemptively because of sagging wires that could have caused forest fires. So they did this to about 60,000 people, and then about 20,000 people were off for several days to prevent forest fires. So that would be, and this happened with San Diego Gas and Electric. So Cal Ed said that they thought they might have to, but they didn't. And what this led me to think about much more seriously is grid defection. Given all of these wildfires, extreme weather events, I think consumers are going to start saying if they haven't already, like, this is not tenable. There is a compact that utilities have with consumers to provide cheap, safe electricity to every one of us. And and if they're cutting it off preemptively because of what's happening with the climate, how can we trust that it just won't continue to happen? And I think this is going to cause a lot more grid defection. I, I, was, I always poo-pooed that for a long time, but watching utilities cut off power to people to prevent bad things from happening. I don't know. I don't think people are going to stand for it. So you're saying that when um, when they asked the proverbial question, what can you do to prevent forest fires? pg e said, we're going to shut off people's electricity. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to go get a battery. <laughs> Smokey the bear should have a solar panel and a battery next to him. So I was reflecting back on the era of journalism around the 2008 time frame as I put some thought into how things had changed since 2008. And I wanted to recommend a piece of audio that I think is one of the best pieces of journalism over the last decade and sparked a new kind of audio storytelling that I think influences every kind of podcast we hear today. It is called The Giant Pool of Money, And it was produced by Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg. Alex Bloomberg at that time was a producer for This American Life. And Adam Davidson was with NPR. And the two of them collaborated on this piece of explainer journalism on how mortgages were sourced, how they got packaged together, how they were sold off into the global financial system, how collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities were formed. And we throw around these terms, and at that time, they were so difficult to understand. But this story truly made it, um, it, it, it informed my whole understanding of how the global financial system was upended. So that sparked Planet Money, which was the NPR show that continues today, uh, a fantastic show that looked at how money moves around, our relationship to it. And early in those days, it was very focused on the financial crisis and everything that was unfolding around us. Since then, I got great inspiration from this from an audio production perspective, thinking about how to explain complicated issues in human, simple language. 
And across the podcasting spectrum, you saw a ton of other shows crop up that took this approach to reporting. And I just think it gave us the kind of journalism that we hear today. For those of you who listen to a lot of podcasts, I will link to that, but I highly recommend you go check it out. It's the, called The Giant Pool of Money. Anyway, I just wanted to bring it up because I've I listen to it generally like once every year, once every couple of years to remind myself of what truly good audio journalism is. And with that, I hope that we elicit even a fraction of the passion that I just exuded about that piece of journalism. Uh, we want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks for the costume ideas. They were fantastic. We love you all. We appreciate you helping us grow our community around the energy transition. We're grateful for your support and your listenership every week. You can, of course, hit us up anywhere you get your podcasts. And as we say every week, go ahead and give us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Greatly, greatly helpful to us. Catherine, go get that speech done. (laughs) Thanks. Will do. Jigger, go round up straw in your hat and be a hybrid zookeeper slash biomass repo man. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll just celebrate Tesla's great earnings report. Oh man, what a great piece of news that is. We're going to have to talk about that in our next episode. We decided though we've talked about Tesla enough, so we'll hold off when we truly understand the implications. That'll be coming up in a future episode. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang, a production of Green Tech Media. Thanks for listening. Thank you.